What I want to talk to you folks about is Joseph's police state. Ray was talking this morning about how so much of Joseph's life mirrors Yeshua, and I completely agree with everything he said. However, Joseph is not Yeshua. So there's some stuff that Joseph does that has far-ranging implications that we're going to see when we get to the book of Exodus. And so where I want to start is I'm going to actually back up to the end of last week's Torah portion. So I'm in Genesis 47, and I'm going to pick it up at verse 13. And where we are is the famine is really biting, and Joseph is taking some actions based on the severity of the famine and the food that he has stored up. By the way, I'm reading from the Tanakh, and that's important, because the Tanakh translation has got something a little different than your English standard does. And it turns out that that's an important difference. Now, there was no bread in all the world, for the famine was very severe. Both the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished because of the famine. Joseph gathered in all the money that was to be found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan as payment for the rations that were being procured. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's palace. So he's gathered up 20% of the harvest for seven years, stored it up. Now the crops are all failing, so now they've got to eat this stored food. So they're coming to Joseph, and Joseph is selling it to him. And he's bringing the money to Pharaoh. And when the money gave out in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, Give us bread, lest we die before your very eyes, for the money is gone. And Joseph said, Bring your livestock, and I will sell you against your livestock if the money is gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph, and Joseph gave them bread in exchange for the horses, for the stocks of sheep and cattle and asses. Thus he provided them with bread that year in exchange for all their livestock. So the first thing he's done is sucked up all the money. Now he's sucking up all the livestock. When that year was ended, they came to him the next year and said to him, We cannot hide from my Lord. That all the money and animal stocks consigned to my Lord, nothing is left at my Lord's disposal save our possessions and our farmland. Let us not perish before your eyes, both we and our land, Take us and our land in exchange for bread, and we with our land will be serfs to Pharaoh. Provide the seed that we may live and not die, and that the land may not become waste. So now what he's taking is money, livestock, land, and he is taking the people to be serfs or slaves to Pharaoh. Verse 20. So Joseph gained possession of all the farmland of Egypt for Pharaoh. Every Egyptian living sold his field because the famine was too much for them. Thus the land passed over to Pharaoh. And he removed the population town by town from one end of Egypt's border to the other. There's your difference in translation. And I'm going to come back to that in just a minute. So verse 21 again in the Tanakh translation. And he removed the population town by town from one end of Egypt's border to the other. Only the land of the priests he did not take over, for the priests had allotment from Pharaoh, and they lived off the allotment which Pharaoh had made to them. Therefore, they did not sell their land. And Joseph said to the people, Whereas I have this day acquired you and your land for Pharaoh, there is seed for you to sow the land. When your harvest comes, you shall give one-fifth to Pharaoh, and so forth. All right, so what Joseph has done is he has got all the money, he's got all the livestock, He's got all the land. He's brought the people into serfdom for Pharaoh. 
Furthermore, he has relocated everybody into the towns. He has moved them off the land and he has moved them into towns. Does that sound like agrarian reform everywhere you've seen it under a communist country? Where they take the people off of their land and they move them into towns and what's gonna happen at the time of the Assyrian conquest, the Assyrians are gonna conquer the Northern Kingdom and what they're gonna do to Israel is they are going to take Israel off the land and move them to different lands so they're disconnected from their ancestral land and there's going to make slaves out of them. So Joseph is setting up a police state here. So the thing I want to explore is why does he do this? And there's a reason for that too, which also plays off of Ray's sermon this morning. What he's done is he has set up the system that Pharaoh is going to use to enslave the Israelites after Joseph's death, that God is finally going to take them out of. Furthermore, he has set up the system that the Assyrians are going to use on the Israelites when they take them into exile. This is all set up right here. And this is a police state that would make East Germany proud. And the thing that you should notice here is every totalitarian regime follows that pattern. So Cambodia, when they were slaughtering everybody, what they did is agrarian reform. What we need to do is reform who owns the land, get people moved off the land into cities where we can control them, and so forth. And that's where it starts. And by the way, that insight I got from Rabbi Sachs. I had never seen that before. In this Midrash, we have always asked, What's going on with Joseph? He's a figure of Christ on one side, but why is he doing this to all the people on the other side? The reason is, and it has to do with something that Ray said this morning, Joseph has been disconnected from his family. He got disconnected from his family when he got sold into Egypt, and he never truly reconnects with them. Now, Joseph's tears, We've taught about this before, but I will refresh your memory. There are seven times that Joseph weeps. And the first time he weeps is when the brothers appear before him, and he hears them talking, and the Torah narrates, he turned away from them and wept. So when the first time he sees his brother co brothers come down, he recognizes them, they don't recognize him, and he turns and weeps in private. Then when Benjamin first appears in 4330, he felt compassion toward his brother, and he wanted to weep. So he entered his chamber and wept there. The third time is in 45.2, he gave his voice to weeping, and the Egyptians in the house of Pharaoh heard. And then the next time is when he reveals himself to his brothers, 45, 14, and 15, he fell on the neck of Benjamin, his brother, and he wept. And Benjamin wept on his neck, and he kissed all his brothers, and he wept upon them. Then the next happens when he goes to Goshen to meet his father, and that's in 46:29. Joseph made ready his chariot, and he went up to Goshen to meet Israel, his father, and he presented himself to him, and he fell upon his neck, and he wept upon his neck a good while. And then when Jacob dies in 49:33 through 51, Jacob expired and was gathered to his people. Joseph fell on his father's face and wept upon him and kissed him. And then the last time is in today's reading where the brothers ask to be forgiven. And what do the brothers offer to do? Become his slaves. 
Joseph is disconnected from his family. He stays disconnected even after he is reunited with his family because he's down in Thebes or someplace administering the kingdom of Egypt and all of his brothers and his fathers and everybody are up in Goshen. He's not really a member of the family because remember when Jacob is ready to die, they send for Joseph to come up and be with his father when he dies. He doesn't live with them. So during his entire life, after the age of 17, he is essentially disconnected from his family. And if you look at the names of his two sons, Manasseh means God has made me forget my family. And then Ephraim, he's he's made me fruitful in my exile. So Joseph is disconnected from his family, and that's key. This next insight I got also from Rabbi Sachs. The book of Genesis is the book of families. The book of Exodus is going to pick Israel up, and they're a nation now. Up until the end of Genesis, it's all families. After the end of Genesis, then we start to talk about nations. So you have relationships in family. You have brothers. First two brothers, one of them kills the other one. You have the competitive childbearing between Rachel and Leah, who are siblings. You've got Hagar and Ishmael being thrown out of the family by Sarah. You've got the two brothers, Jacob and Esau. So the whole story of Genesis revolves around families. And most of the pathologies and the living together in families is explored in the book of Genesis. You know, how do two brothers get along? You have rivalry between two brothers to the extent that one of them wants to kill the other. You have rivalry between fathers and sons to the extent that one of them wants to sacrifice the other. Bear with me a minute, because in Greek literature, that's called Oedipus, where the son wants to get rid of the father. And one of the things Sachs says, which is very powerful, I thought, was the thing about the binding of Isaac is a refutation of that. And what it says is the son does not belong to the father as he does in every other culture. Because you know the Roman culture, for example, you had the paterfamilias, and he had life and death authority over anybody in his family, to include his sons. So you get a son coming up full of testosterone and all that kind of stuff, and his dad is in a position of life and death authority over you, wind up having conflict between father and son. Hence, Oedipus. Or Absalom, when he tries to get rid of David. Remember, Absalom rises up against David and tries to kill him. So that is a theme throughout Scripture. And what the binding of Isaac does is it says the son does not belong to the father, and the father doesn't have life and death authority over the son, so you can break that dynamic. The same thing with the rivalry between brothers. That's what the wrestling with the angel is where Jacob has tried to become Esau because Esau has got his father's favor and all that kind of stuff, and Jacob has spent his entire life trying to be Esau. And then he finally comes back and wrestles with the angel, and that one is broken. So you got the two primary male sources of conflict are dealt with in those two instances in Scripture. So the point is, all of Genesis has been setting up families and how we live in families, how we relate in families, and families are the fundamental political unit of humanity. That's where you learn to live with people. 
That's where you learn to negotiate. That's where you turn for your allies. All of that stuff is fundamental to humanity. Joseph has lost that. So Joseph is disconnected. He weeps seven times when the extent of his disconnection touches his heart. Because every time he weeps, it is in the context of his family. And he comes back into contact with them, and it touches his heart, and he weeps. And I would suggest one of the reasons he's weeping is because he realizes what he doesn't have. And furthermore, he can't get it. Because first off, he's got responsibilities as the viceroy of Egypt. You know, he's got to go around enslaving people and all that kind of stuff. So he's got responsibilities as the viceroy that he cannot drop because if he drops those, his family will suffer. And the other part is his brothers don't trust him either. And that's what we saw in today's Torah portion. You remember with Jacob and Esau, when Esau determines that he's going to kill the little SOB because he stole the blessing, right? What does he say? Wait till dad dies, then I'm going to kill him. So now Jacob is dead, and the brothers think, now he's going to kill us. And furthermore, he's got the power to do it. So his brothers never trust him. He has lost his family connections. And that's the thing that enables him to, how would I describe it? Every totalitarian enterprise, at least since the middle of the 18th century, have been involved with reason. In other words, this is the logical thing to do. That's how communism or socialism presents itself, right? This is logical. This is the best way to do things. This is intellectually correct. So what Joseph is doing is the logical thing unencumbered by family ties. So what you're seeing here in this story is the precursor to socialism, communism, Nazism, fascism, all of that kind of stuff. It's all wrapped up in here, and the reason for it is the same. And I'll get to that in a minute. Now, look at where we are today. What has happened since the 1960s in the United States and Europe? The family has been destroyed. Combination of divorce, two incomes, all sorts of things, and it is a deliberate assault on the family. Because in order for these schemes to succeed, the family has to be destroyed because if your loyalty is to the family, your loyalty can't be to the state. And so what we've done is we have destroyed the family and we have transferred people's loyalty to the government, the state, and then the state is operating rationally, quote unquote, and the state is in the process of doing this stuff that Joseph did to Egypt. And that's why the assault on the families since the 60s has been such a disaster. Europe is way below replacement of its native population. So what they're doing is they're importing third world people and what that's going to do is that's going to mean there isn't going to be any Europe anymore as we knew it. Same thing's happening in the United States. And what it is is disconnecting the people from their land and the people from their families. And once you've disconnected the people from their family and from their land, then all of this totalitarian crap makes sense because it is logical, quote unquote. When Joseph is constructing his police state, 
Notice who's not swept up. The priests. The priests all get to keep their land. The priests all get to keep their animals. The priests all get a subsidy of food. The priests are the deep state. Those are the Washington lawyers and the lobbyists and all those folks that live in and around Virginia and Maryland, the richest counties in the United States. So you have exactly a parallel, if you will, between all of the socialist setups and what's going on with Joseph. The inner circle, the deep state, they do just fine under socialism. It's everybody else that suffers. The whole point here is if you've destroyed the family, what you've done is you have destroyed God's school of how to live with people. You've got to figure out how to get along with your brother or your sister. And by the way, with the exception of a couple of parables, this is not talked about in the New Testament. I checked. You've got several mentions of brothers, but nothing like this. The parable of the prodigal son comes close, but it's the kid that bails there as opposed to his family being destroyed. And here, what's happened is through God's action, Joseph has been separated from his family, and he now has no roots. And so he's then able to attach, if you will, to Pharaoh, and what he's doing is he is trying to do what he thinks is logically best for Pharaoh. And that involves enslaving the nation to Pharaoh. One of the things that you can have a little bit of hope about is things like the homeschooling movement that gets families out of the government system and reestablishes families. Families are dysfunctional, they're combative, they're messy, and everything else but they're God's design for how you acculturate people. And the thing about learning it in the family is the parents love you. And so when you do something egregiously stupid in a family, they typically don't kill you. So you have an opportunity to get all of that junk out of your system in a relatively safe environment And then when you go out into the world, one hopes that you have learned something from your family. So let's now look at the blessing of Joseph's two sons. The first thing is, of course, what that does is effectively gives Joseph the double portion of the firstborn. Because by adopting his first and second son, as equivalent to Jacob's own sons, what that does is elevates Jacob's two sons to the same inheritance level as Joseph's 11 brothers, which essentially then gives the tribe of Joseph, which is divided between Ephraim and Manasseh, a double portion, which makes Joseph the firstborn. So now we have the business of crossing the hands. The firstborn is Manasseh, And as you remember, he says, when Manasseh is born, I have forgotten my father's house. And the second one is Ephraim, which means I have been fruitful in my affliction. Interesting insight I had never seen, but it makes a lot of sense. When Jacob is blessing his two grandsons, he recognizes that the beginning of the exile, which was prophesied to Abraham, has started. When Abraham, at the splitting of the animals where the torch and the smoking pot go between, and God says that your descendants will be in a strange land, 
and they will come out with great riches, but they'll be enslaved for a while, right? So at that point, Jacob recognizes that this is the start of that part of the prophecy. And what he does not want Israel to do, his sons, is he doesn't want them to forget. So instead of having forgetfulness be first, as it was with Joseph, what he does is he switches his hands and he says, I want you to be fruitful. I don't want you to forget. So, sort of the last thing we come to here is the swearing in of Joseph to take care of the body of his father. And the question is, you know, put your hand under my thigh and swear to me. Where have we seen that before? When Abraham sends his servant to get a wife for Isaac, put your hand under my thigh and swear to me. And the question, I think, that is in Jacob's mind is whose son is Joseph? Pharaoh brought you out of the pit. Pharaoh put clothes on you, gave you a wife, gave you a name. He gave him a new name. And, oh, by the way, my firstborn son means I forget my father's house. So the question in Jacob's mind is, where is this kid's loyalty? He's not a kid anymore. He's a full-grown man. Where is this guy's loyalty? And so what he asks for is an oath because he doesn't trust up front that his estranged son will do the right thing. And hence, he gets an oath. And we've talked about this before. Joseph is an odd character because he's neither Egyptian nor is he Israelite. He's sort of in between. He's estranged from the family. So when it comes time for his father to die and he has to execute the oath that he has sworn, he himself doesn't even ask Pharaoh to do it. He asks somebody that he thinks has more influence than he has to go talk to Pharaoh and get permission for him to go bury his father. And you would think that as number two in the kingdom, there wouldn't be anybody with more influence Yet he doesn't go and ask Pharaoh himself. Everything that he does is at Pharaoh's behest. His own father has to get him to take an oath. And what he's asked to do is outside of his comfort zone. He is not comfortable asking Pharaoh to go bury his father. He gets permission to go. And they go up with a great retinue cavalry and so forth. And one of the interesting things that I'm sure everybody noticed is they left their flocks and herds and children behind. When Pharaoh is negotiating with Moses, one of the things he tries is you men can go out and worship, but you leave your flocks and your herds and your little ones back here, just like what Joseph did. Because then we know you're coming back. This is establishing that history. All of the stuff of the Exodus is being set up, if you will, here in Genesis. What does the threshing floor of a Todd mean? The threshing floor of a Todd. Remember, that's where they stop on the outside of the Jordan. It means thorns. Now, what happens is, as he goes, they stop at the threshing floor of a Todd, which is on the other side of the Jordan from where they're going to bury him. And they have a great mourning there, M-O-U-R-I-N-I-N-G. 
and everybody looks and sees the Egyptians are all there mourning and it's at the threshing floor of the thorns. And so what you have is a crown of thorns. And if you want to dip into rabbinic stories, which is even more fun, the people who are watching this retinue come up to bury Jacob, rabbinically, now this is not biblical, are the exiled sons of Abraham and Isaac. So you have Esau and Ishmael. And what they see is Joseph, who is wearing a crown of thorns because Joseph was also thrown out of the family. And they back off. That's rabbinic. That's not scripture. The point is you have someone who is exiled, who is at a place which is called the threshing floor of thorns, and he is burying his father, and the whole tribe is there. Last thing, and then we'll close. One of the things that Rabbi Sachs draws from this, and I like this very much, is talking about families. He says that there are three things that you can pick up from Genesis. The first one is grandparents are important. Because remember, at the end, it's the grandfather that blesses the two grandsons. The second one is that Jacob blesses his 12 sons. Now, he's got his entire family together in one room because they're all there with him. And even the ones that he sort of gives a left-handed blessing to, Reuben, Simeon, and Levi, he is still speaking into their future. So they are still part of the family, and they are still important to the family. And he's saying, yeah, you did some things wrong, but you're still part of the family. As opposed to what winds up happening to Ishmael, for example. And then the third is that after the death of Jacob, the brothers asked Joseph to forgive them. And this is the first instance of human forgiveness in the Bible. I said that very carefully. Did everybody listen to my precise words? It is not the first time the word forgiveness is used. It is the third time it is used, but it's the first time that forgiveness is extended. So when God is considering whether or not he is going to take out Sodom and Gomorrah, and he's talking with Abraham, the question in God's mind is, am I going to forgive Sodom and Gomorrah? The word forgiveness is used twice during that conversation. So it's not the first use of the word in the Bible. It is the first time forgiveness is ever extended, And it's the first time that humans do any forgiving. Now, as a practical matter, Joseph forgave his brothers when Judah came up and asked to exchange himself for Benjamin in last week's Torah portion. Mechanically, forgiveness was extended there, but the word was not used. And then after the death of Jacob, the brothers come and ask for forgiveness formally. And that's the first time the word is used. And, of course, Joseph does extend forgiveness to them. So you've got grandparents are important. You've got the whole family is important because Jacob deals with all 12 of his sons on his deathbed. And then you have the idea of forgiveness within the family. Those are all lessons in Genesis. And as I say, next week when we start Exodus, we change from families to nations. Mm-hmm.